Globetrotters whenever they came to town. And amazingly, every time we went, the Globetrotters won. Incredible. But what always impressed my kids was the Globetrotters' grand entrance. The house lights dimmed. Shining and swirling spotlights surrounded the portal at the end of the court. Smoke began to billow. The music blared. The PA announcer gave it his best. Ladies and gentlemen, the crowd roared. Finally, the Globetrotters came through the portal bouncing their basketballs. It was a grand entrance indeed. I'll never forget one year we got home and Nick asked me, he said, Dad, do you think our football team can have smoke when we run out onto the field? He was really impressed. And so were the Jews when Jesus made His grand entrance into the holy city of Jerusalem. His arrival was accompanied by fanfare fit for a king, maybe even the Globetrotters. You see, for nine months, Jesus had zigzagged His way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. In all, Jesus stopped 35 different times on His journey southward to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 20, He passed through Jericho on His final ascent up to Jerusalem. Jesus had left the Sea of Galilee nine months earlier, and He had planned His arrival perfectly so that He entered Jerusalem on a specific day, on the Sunday prior to the Passover. Matthew records that strategic day in chapter 21. That's where we begin. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Of course, the Mount of Olives is the eastern limits of Jerusalem. It's adjacent to Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount. The two mountains are separated only by a narrow valley called the Kidron. Jesus probably spent the previous night in Bethany which was a small village about two miles east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope or the Jericho side of the Mount of Olives. Bethany was the home of Jesus' three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. During his week there in Bethany, uh, the home of Lazarus probably served as his headquarters, his base of operation while he was in Jerusalem. It's interesting, Bethphage is mentioned here. It means house of figs. And it was even a smaller village on the eastern slope up near the top of the Mount of Olives between Bethany and Jerusalem. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately He will send them. Jesus is preparing for His triumphant entry. You know, years ago, ESPN did an interview with multi-millionaire slugger Mark McGuire. At the time, Mark was playing for the Oakland A's, and he was an eligible bachelor. And in the interview, he expressed his loneliness and his difficulties in relationships. Mark said that there was no shortage of girls that wanted to date him and even marry him but he could never be sure if they were interested in him or in his money. I know some of you have had that same problem. But in a sense, Jesus had this very problem. I mean, the miracles he performed attracted the crowds. They drew many admirers. Jesus was a very eligible Messiah. 
but he was never sure of the crowd's motivation. Did Jesus really want to follow him or just his miracles? And this is why throughout his ministry, he never organized a public demonstration. Jesus never gathered a crowd. He never subjected himself to the whims of a fickle audience with one exception. Right here in Matthew chapter 21. We're about to read of the only demonstration that Jesus ever personally orchestrated. And he starts out with transportation arrangements. The disciples saddle a donkey for the most spectacular grand entrance of all time. Verse 4. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went, and they did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on them. Notice two features of Jesus' one public crusade. First, notice its preparations were specific. And second, I want you to notice its timing was strategic. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 predicted that Messiah would appear to the nation riding on a donkey. You see, prior to the reign of Solomon, Hebrews considered donkeys to be royal animals. Deuteronomy 17 had prohibited the king from accumulating horses, lest he trust in his cavalry rather than God. That's why King David rode not on a horse, but on a donkey. But his son Solomon disobeyed the law, and he built stables, and he gathered vast herds of horses. And from Solomon's time onward, the Jewish kings, like their Gentile counterparts, rode what they considered to be more noble animals, these stallions, these white steeds. In choosing to ride a donkey into the city, Jesus was making a twofold claim. One, a donkey hearkened back to the days of David. You see, the Messiah was to be a descendant of David. Jesus wanted to draw upon that imagery to reinforce his identity as the son and heir and descendant of David. His choice of a donkey spoke of who he was, but it also spoke of what he was. For the donkey was a beast of burden, it was a pack animal. The donkey was the ultimate servant. And in choosing a donkey, Jesus was expressing his humility and his desire to serve. Jesus was king, but he was a different type of king, ruling a different type of kingdom. His kingdom was not one of earthly pomp and power. Jesus' kingdom was spiritual. He came not with a rod of iron, but with cords of love. He came not to rule over institutions, but individuals to establish his throne in the hearts of men and women. You see, the Old Testament had predicted the donkey, but it also predicted the date. This is an amazing prophecy. I hope you're familiar with it. Daniel 9 pinpointed the exact date that Messiah would appear to the nation Israel. God identified to Daniel 69 weeks or intervals of seven years. Daniel 9 verse 25 declares, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, he's talking about a period of 69 weeks, which is 
483 years, you want to get a little bit more specific, 173,880 days. So from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, there would be a period of 173,880 days. History tells us that the Persian king Artaxerxes issued the decree to restore and build Jerusalem on March the 14th, 445 B.C. If you'll take a calendar, you've got to do a little gymnastics, you've got to work through a couple of calendar nuances. But if you take that calendar and chart off 173,880 days, you come to the date of April the 6th, 32 A.D. This was the day Jesus made His entry into Jerusalem. This was the Sunday before the Passover. The exact day that Jesus orchestrated His only public demonstration. The day He rode the donkey down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem was the exact day predicted by Daniel 500 years in advance. We're told in a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is why we call the day Palm Sunday. Spreading out the palm fronds was like rolling out the red carpet. The palm tree, by the way, was a symbol of Israel. It spoke of the Jews' desire for independence. And they believed that Jesus would gain them that independence. That He was their long-awaited deliverer. Well, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Just three days earlier, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. In Jericho, he had opened the eyes of two men born blind. Now, these folks were gathered. They had heard of all these reported miracles and many more. Tens of thousands of folks now have gathered in Jerusalem. And the buzz is about Jesus. That's why they come out and they line the road and they greet him as he comes into the city. It's interesting, in the Apocrypha, in a book called 1 Maccabees, we're told of an event that occurred between the Testaments. God delivered the Jews from the Syrians. About 150 B.C., a priest by the name of Simon Maccabeus, he overthrew the Syrian king, evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes. And 1 Maccabees chapter 13 tells us, The Jews entered with praise and palm branches and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. Notice here they do the same. Two centuries have now passed. And again, foreign armies occupy Israel. This time, they're not the Syrians, they're the Romans. And the multitudes who greeted Jesus wanted Him to use His powers To break this foreign yoke, just as the Maccabees had done a century and a half earlier. And they cry, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, they cry out, Hosanna, which means, save now. Wow. That was some pretty good timing. It means, save now. You see, they were interested in military, political freedom. But Jesus knew that the people 
would never truly be free until they were free from the evil tyrant called sin. You see, in the long run, dying on a cross would do more for His people than sitting on a throne. Jesus wanted to deliver His people spiritually. And yet, because Jesus didn't fulfill the people's expectations, these same fickle crowds turned on Him. Remember, many of the folks who sang on Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, will shout on Thursday, Crucify Him, crucify Him. And don't think this isn't repeated today. I'm afraid that people today reject Jesus when it becomes apparent that His agenda is not their agenda. Isn't it interesting, as long as Jesus meets my needs, as long as He cooperates with my plans, oh, all is fine. I love Jesus. But when we discover that Jesus doesn't always share our agenda, that He has plans different from our own, that's when our faith gets tested. Remember, Jesus' priority is not your happiness as much as it is your holiness. Now, it's interesting, Daniel 9 goes on to say that after those 483 years when Messiah appears, he'll be cut off, but not for himself, Daniel says. The phrase cut off refers to a violent death. And we know that just five days later, after this event, Jesus is going to be cut off and crucified by the Romans. Remember, too, This was the Sunday before the Passover, the Jewish day of preparation. It was the day that the Jewish families went to the market and selected a Passover lamb. They would go and they would find a lamb without spot or blemish. And though the Jews who went out to greet Jesus didn't realize it, they too were choosing a lamb, weren't they? Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. You know, it's sad the Jews didn't fully grasp the ramifications of this important event. In Luke's account of the triumphant entry, he tells us that Jesus stopped along the road and He wept over the city of Jerusalem. In Luke 19, verse 42, Jesus says of Jerusalem, If you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, the Jews didn't grasp Daniel's prophecy and they overlooked his timing. Thus, the nation missed out on an incredible opportunity for peace. Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah and for the last 2,000 years, they've known nothing but servitude and suffering. Well, verse 10 continues. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled from its usual 200,000 to over two and a half million people. Pilgrims came from all over Jewry. The city was teeming with people. And in 32 AD, trust me, all the folks could talk about was this prophet from Nazareth. The buzz was Jesus. It's interesting, the word translated moved is the word seismic, the force of an earthquake. It says that they were moved, the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Hey, the arrival of Jesus shook them to the roots. It shook up the entire city of Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple 
and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, as I noted, the Sunday before Passover was the day of preparation. And on that day, not only was the Passover lamb selected, but the house of the Jews was purged of leaven. And this is what Jesus does next. Now understand, the Jews had hoped that Jesus would storm the fortress of Antonio, the Roman military compound there on the Temple Mount. He wanted them to cleanse that part of the temple. But Jesus instead went into the temple proper, and He cleansed the Father's house of greed and corruption. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, during His first Passover in Jerusalem, He had taken a whip, and He had driven out the money changers. Here, a whip is never mentioned. He overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. Apparently, he did it with his bare hands. This is a bare-knuckle cleansing of the temple. Picture it in your mind. Money goes flying. Merchandise gets ruined. Doves are flying everywhere. Jesus ransacks the temple's business establishment. He lays hands on the Jews. It is a bare-knuckled Exercise and discipline. And there are many lessons to be gleaned here. But don't miss the obvious. Jesus of Nazareth was no wimp. He's a man's man. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. And carpenters in those days didn't go down to Home Depot to buy their lumber. They went out into the forest and they fell a tree. They timbered a few trees. Jesus was a muscular guy, no doubt about it. And he wasn't afraid to mix it up when necessary. When he got angry, nobody wanted to get in his way. In Jesus' day, the priests had turned the temple worship into a lucrative business. You see, when a sacrifice was brought to the temple, whether it be a dove or whether it be a lamb, it first had to be inspected by the priests for defects. And they always, trust me, they always found a flaw in what you brought them. That meant that you had to then go to the temple authorized dealer to get your lamb. The cost of those lambs was astronomical. Almost as much as a gallon of gas. You could tell that it was a racket. The money changers were also in on this scam. You see in Exodus 30 verse 13, the required... Uh, The the law of Moses required that every Hebrew male, 20 years old and over, had to pay a temple tax of half a shekel. The priests, though, wouldn't accept the Roman currency, since the Roman coins were engraved with a picture of the emperor. And so they had their own temple coins. To pay the temple tax, you had to exchange your Roman coins for temple coins. (laughs) And guess what? There was a hefty exchange rate. The priests were getting a kickback on both the sacrifices and the temple exchange. The priests were making a buck off God. And Jesus didn't like it one bit. Jesus rips up the folks who were ripping off the flock. I have no doubt that Jesus is still ticked off today for the same reasons. No doubt about it. People are still making a buck off God. It is a sin to take advantage of a man's hunger for God by selling him ministry materials at exorbitant prices. Whether that's books or tapes or concert tickets, 
hey, covering costs and making a fortune are two different things. You know, actually, the worst part of what the merchants did was where it occurred. The market was on the south end of the Temple Mount, in the area known as the Court of the Gentiles. This was where an interested Gentile would come to pray and to learn about God. In other words, it was the only exposure that the Gentiles had to the true worship of God. And yet, they were being turned off by the obvious and blatant greed of these priests. If there is a court of the Gentiles today, I think it's the media. It's television and radio. These are the two venues available to unbelievers to just come and learn about the true God. I think of the guy, probably half-sauced, sitting there at night. His life is empty. He's trying to drown his sorrows. Just thinking, I wonder if God has anything for me. And so he turns on the television to the Christian TV station. Oh, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't watch Christian television. My, oh, my. Nine times out of ten, he turns that thing on and he's exposed to some money-hungry televangelist. To me, this is defiling the court of the Gentiles. It's turning people off to Jesus before they're ever exposed to His grace and His truth. I think the picture we're painting today is as distorted as the corruption that existed in the temple in Jesus' day. One more point before I leave this. I would imagine that one of the most frustrating aspects of the sin that Jesus found in the temple that day was that He had already removed it once before. Jesus had already cleansed the temple of this very same sin. And I wonder if Jesus has the same frustration when He cleanses our lives. Sandy, why are you dealing? Didn't we deal with that six months ago? Why do we have to deal with that again? How often does Jesus deal with a sin in your life that he dealt with six months ago, or a year ago, or a year and a half ago. This is why we need a continual cleansing of the Word of God in our lives. Well, notice verse 13. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice Jesus comes into the holy temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he says, This is my house. It's His house. It belonged to Him and His Father. And here he quotes Isaiah 56 verse 7. The Old Testament verse read, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice Jesus says that it was a, not just a house for the Jews, but it was a house for all nations. The implication was that this temple was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. That's why the Jews polluting the court of the Gentiles was such a treacherous thing in God's eyes. As a matter of fact, they had turned the house of God, as Jesus put it, into a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Notice the priest realized the title Son of David was a term reserved for the Messiah. They understood that Jesus was claiming no less to be God's chosen. 
And the Jews said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read, and he quotes Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Notice these chief priests didn't understand the pure simplicity of praise. Understand, true worship isn't the long, ornate, you know, soliloquy, prayed in perfect King James English. That's not true worship. True worship isn't the perfect pitch of a polished, trained soloist. That's not true worship. True worship is the giggle of a little girl in the presence of a boy she has a crush on. True worship is the cooing of an infant resting in the loving arms of his mother. True worship is a child busting down the the door when daddy pulls into the driveway, excited to see him as he comes home from work. You see, true worship is not something planned out and polished and prepared. True worship is the ecstatic response of a heart that has come in contact with someone that he loves and that he respects and that he admires. True worship doesn't say, give me. It simply says, thanks. It doesn't demand presence. It just enjoys God's presence. That's true worship. Jesus says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. In verse 17, then he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Day one is complete. The first day of his last week is now over. The opening act of the drama in Jerusalem has come to a close. Jesus returns now to the eastern suburbs. He's gone over the top of the Mount of Olives, back to Lazarus' house where he'll get a good night's rest. For Jesus will need it. Monday will be a busy day. And speaking of Monday, some of you old guys like me, do you remember back in the 1960s to the mamas and the papas? You remember that tune they used to sing? Monday, Monday. That's right. Here are the lyrics. You want me to sing it? Oh, okay. All right. Don't worry. Oh, Monday morning, you gave me no warning of what it would be that Monday evening you would leave and not take me. Every other day of the week is fine. But when every Monday comes, I'm almost singing it, aren't I? But when every Monday comes, you find me crying all of the time. Monday, Monday, couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be there with me. The author must have spent a warm weekend with his girlfriend. But come Monday, she splits without him. It's interesting how the words of the song parallel this Monday in Jesus' life. He had been so warmly embraced on Sunday. He had rode his donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. But oh my, on Monday, the tide is going to change. The Jewish leaders are determined to trap Jesus, to discredit Jesus. The temple is going to be filled with tension. By the end of the day, these Jewish religious leaders They're going to solidify their decision to murder Jesus. And we're going to find Him on the Mount of Olives crying and weeping over the rejection of the Jews and the destruction that it will cause. This infamous Monday was the last time that Jesus entered the sacred halls of the temple. It was the day the Jews rejected Jesus and the day that God rejected the Jews. 
Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. It was going to be a busy day, and so he skipped breakfast. Jesus didn't eat his Wheaties this day. And so his stomach was growling. And seeing a fig tree by the road. Now fig trees are common in Israel. They grow to 25 foot high sometimes, as wide as 20, 25 feet wide. And they produce these broad leaves and, of course, some delicious fruit. Remember the village, it was mentioned earlier, between Bethany and Jerusalem? The village Bethpage, it meant house of figs. It may have been in Bethpage that Jesus saw this fig tree. The fig tree was so common in Israel, it was a staple in the Jewish diet. You might say it was one of four major Jewish food groups. Bread, grapes, fish, and figs. That was the Jewish diet. Jesus saw this fig tree by the road, but there was a problem. He came to it, and He found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Now with most fruit trees, leaves appear first. Then fruit. But the fig tree is an exception. On a fig tree, the fruit precedes the leaves. Thus, when Jesus saw that this tree had only leaves, he knew that it was diseased and barren and had not produced any fruit, and therefore he pronounced on it a curse. And immediately the fig tree withered away. There are those that feel like Jesus was being sort of fickle here. I mean, you skip breakfast, you're a little grouchy, you know, your stomach's growling, you come to a fig tree, there's no figs, and so you get angry and you just curse the thing. Understand, Jesus isn't being fickle here, He's being figurative. The fig tree was a well-known symbol of the nation Israel. You can jot down these verses, Jeremiah 8, verse 13. Hosea 9, verse 10, Joel 1, verse 7, Micah 7, verses 1 through 6 are just a few of the places in the Old Testament where the fig tree is used as an idiom for Israel. Jesus saw this fruitless fig tree as a figure of the nation Israel. She had leaves, lots of leaves, but no fruit. The Jews, you see, they had the trappings of religion. They had the leaves of good works. Israel had kept the rules and observed the rituals. She was clothed in her traditions, but behind the facade, beneath the leaves, there was no fruit. She was cursed. There was no real love for God. None of the gentle graces that are evident when a soul is in contact with the Spirit of God. Patience and joy, peace and kindness and endurance. Understand what was true of the nation Israel can be true of you and me. You see, good deeds, charitable works, religious observance, tradition can all be like leaves. Oh, they make us pretty on the outside. They make us pleasing to man. But God sees past the leaves and He looks for fruit. And when fruit is absent, God brings judgment to that tree. You see, Jesus' stomach is still growling. Jesus is still hungry for fruit. He's looking for fruit in your life, not leaves. 
There is a rumbling in his stomach for fruit, not fluff. Are we manifesting the fruits of the Spirit in our lives? And when the disciples saw it, what Jesus had done, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? The parable of the fig tree illustrates the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. Jesus came to the nation looking for fruit, but found none. And as a result, the nation withered and died and has remained barren for the last 2,000 years. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. It's interesting, the disciples, they missed the point of the illustration altogether. And they fixated on the power behind it. And Jesus reminds us of the tremendous power of faith-infused prayer. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that there is power in prayer? Here is the key to prayer. If you have faith and do not doubt. If we refuse to yield to the what-ifs. If we hold on to God's promises. He will answer our prayers. We can say to a mountain, be moved. And it will be moved. Verse 22, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now when He came into the temple, now it's still Monday, and Jesus enters the same temple that He had cleansed the day before. Obviously, He had created quite an uproar amongst the religious establishment. These chief priests, they were the authority that had sponsored the ripoff. They were getting kickbacks from the gouging. And in their minds, Jesus had intruded on their turf. They're seething, they're angry, and they're looking for revenge. The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. The Jewish hierarchy, they had confronted Jesus while he was teaching. Picture this, picture Jesus. He's under Solomon's porch. He's surrounded by these huge columns, 40 foot high. They're stretching out in either direction, several hundred yards. A large, huge crowd is gathered around him. And the people are listening attentively. They're hanging on Jesus' every word. Suddenly, rudely, these chief priests, they barrel through the crowd and they interrupt the master. This is a fight Jesus didn't go looking for. It came to him. This is not some low-key approach. Jesus is being publicly challenged here by these chief priests. And they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now remember, these were the chief priests, and I mean chief. They were the barons of Judaism. They were the so-called representatives of God. They were the brokers of Jewish authority. And if they had not authorized Jesus, where did He get His authority? On many occasions, Jesus had explained that His authority had come from God. But here Jesus answers their question with a question of His own. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Sounds fair enough. Here's this question. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? 
And they reasoned among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all counted John as a prophet. And so they did the courageous thing, the really bold thing. They went out on a limb here. These are the chief priests and under the gun. They rise up and they say, We do not know. Talk about wimping out. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Touche. The chief priests have tried to corner Jesus. They want to bully him around. They want to bruise his standing before the people. Instead, they're the ones that walk away with egg on their faces. It's hard to argue the Bible with the Bible answer man. Isn't it? Jesus goes on to tell these chief priests three stories that testified to his authority. He does so without giving the chief priests any ammunition to use against him and to publicly condemn him. Jesus is brilliant. Verse 28. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Notice the second son substituted saying the right words for making the right choices. And I don't know if you found this, but I have. It's easy to do. It's so much easier to say the right things than it is to do the right things. You know, I've discovered that you can talk long enough about a subject. You can talk thoroughly enough about a subject that it makes you believe that you're a participant, that you're an expert, that you've already done what you've been talking about when you really haven't. There are sports writers I know who've never played an inning of baseball, but they've talked so much about baseball that they walk around like they're experts, like they're players themselves, like they're Hall of Flame, Fame players. Hey, just because you talk about obedience doesn't mean that you're going to obey. And they said to him, the first, Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. They started out pretty defiant, these tax collectors and these sinners, but they confessed their sin. They turned from their sin. They were willing to repent. And that's what it's all about, guys. The willingness to repent. The Jews, on the other hand, they had substituted profession for possession. Just saying the right words for doing the right deeds. They were just talk. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe in him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now this was a common business arrangement in Palestine. A landowner would develop his land... He would turn it into a vineyard. He would plant the choicest grapes. He would install a protective hedge. He would build a wine press, erect a security tower. What Jesus was describing was a fully loaded, ready to work, 
turnkey vineyard. After building the vineyard, the landowner would then lease it out to a tenant who would work it. And he would return a portion of the harvest to the landowner as rent. Now when vintage time drew near, the landowner sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, a few feet west of where Jesus is standing as he teaches this parable are the huge double doors that mark the entrance into the holy place of the temple. These doors were engraved with grapevines. They were grapevines carved in solid gold. They were over a hundred feet tall. Even more than the fig tree, the grapevine was also a symbol for Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 concludes, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. You see, the vineyard was Israel. The workers that had been sent from the landowner were the Old Testament prophets. The landowner was God Himself. And Israel rejects God's messengers when He sends them to Him, to them. You remember Isaiah himself was sawn in two. Verse 37. Then last of all, He sent His Son to them, saying, They will respect My Son. But when the vine dressers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They were greedy. They were power hungry. They were jealous. They forgot who owned the vineyard, didn't they? They forgot that God owned the vineyard. They thought they owned the vineyard. We should never forget who owns the church. It's not us. It's Jesus. And suddenly we find the motive for the murder of Jesus. It was jealousy and control on the part of the Jewish leaders. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Martin Luther was known for his fiery temper. And he once said this, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. God would certainly be right and justified in kicking us to pieces. That's not what He's chosen to do. Even though the Jews rejected the prophets and killed His only Son, Jesus, God still extends to them the olive branch. God still wants to make peace with Israel. Can you imagine this? God still wants to make peace with us. Even though our sin also nailed Jesus to the cross. Spurgeon wrote this, If you reject God... He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds cleansing. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Despite how we've rejected God in the past, He is still willing to forgive us and acceptance. Despite what you've done to God in the past, He will forgive you tonight if you ask Him. All He asks of us is that we repent of our sin And trust in His Son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will He do to those vine dressers? They said to Him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease His vineyard to other vine dressers 
who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. There is a limit to God's patience. Judgment will come. The landowner will one day return himself and punish those people that have usurped his authority and rejected his messengers. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 was a song of the Jews. And it was the song that the Jews had sung the previous day when Jesus had rode his donkey into Jerusalem. Their quotes, Hosanna, Hosanna, had come from Psalm 118. Jesus now applies this part of the chapter to himself and he appeals to a well-known tradition. There is a story, it goes like this. When Herod's temple was under construction, the stones that were quarried for the temple were quarried some distance from the temple mount and they were hauled in for placement. One of the initial stones that arrived on the scene didn't seem to fit. And so it was rolled off the mountain into the valley below. After all the stones had been shipped and the temple was near completion, the builders realized that they were one stone short. The cornerstone was still missing in action. And then they remembered the stone that they had rejected. That was the foundation stone. Jesus applies this story to himself. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's plan for the ages. But the chief priests, the builders of Judaism, rejected him. They rolled him off the cliff. Yet who the Jews rejected has become the foundation stone of a new, more glorious temple. Namely, the church. He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. This new nation is the church. It's interesting, Peter calls us a holy nation. God's kingdom will be transferred from Israel to the church. And notice the next verse. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. What a powerful, provocative verse. Understand, Whenever a man meets Jesus, he gets stoned. It's true. Whenever you meet Jesus, you get stoned. I'm not talking about drugs. But salvation involves getting stoned. For Jesus is the rock. And you can't meet Him without getting broken by this rock. Now it happens one of two ways. Freely or forcibly. Willingly or willfully. Either you choose to come to God humbly and broken. Or the rock will break you. It's one or the other. Either you humble yourself before Jesus. And receive the power you need to start over. Or Jesus will humble you and grind you to powder. So here's your choice. Do you want powder or power? That's our choice. Powder or power? Hey, I want the power. I don't want to be the powder. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. What a heavy verse, literally. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. My oh my, they're so perceptive, aren't they? But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes. Because they took him for a prophet. 
chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, He's still answering the question, By what authority are you doing these things? He's still answering that question. Notice this. In the first parable he tells, the emphasis is on the Father. The last parable, the emphasis was on the Son. And now in this third and final parable, the spotlight is going to be on the Spirit. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus says, by the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity testify to Jesus' authority. Verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Now first on the guest list was the Jews. Jesus said the gospel was to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. This was a matter not of preference, but of precedence. It's not that God loves the Jews more than He loves the Gentiles. God's promises were first made to Jews. That means Jews get first dibs. You know, if we say girls first, it doesn't mean that guys can't go. It doesn't mean that we don't love you guys. I mean, it's just proper etiquette. Girls first. Well, in God's economy, it doesn't mean that the Gentiles aren't loved. It's just God has set the precedent. Jews first. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. Notice the Jews snubbed God's banquet and their invitation to attend. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Oh my, when Israel rejected Jesus, God did send his army to Jerusalem to do this very thing. His army wore Roman uniforms. And in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus killed a million Jews and ravaged the holy city, fulfilling this parable. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Go down to Lilburn, Georgia, and get that gnarly crowd. Invite those guys. Man, God is so merciful that He's even extended an invitation to His wedding to a gnarly bunch like you and me. Can you imagine His mercy and His grace? So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Notice this. They, they went out and they got both bad and good. Both the bad and the good are invited. How many of you are part of the good? That's what I thought. How many of you are part of the bad? It's unanimous. You know, there are some of you. I mean, you've been Christian since childhood. You've lived these wonderful, spotless lives. Others of you have lived some pretty spotted lives. But it just goes to show that from the best of the good to the worst of the bad, none of us come to God on our own merit or through our own good works. You see, he goes out, invite the good and the bad. 
For it's not our own good works that save us. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not whether you're good or bad, my friend. It's whether you have accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ to come to the banquet. Have you accepted that tonight? But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Now, now here's the ticket to the banquet. You've got to wear the proper attire. Notice, what we wear does matter to Jesus. And Psalm 61 tells us what we all ought to be sporting. Here it goes. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Notice this. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And where can these threads be bought? You don't have enough money, friend, to buy these robes of righteousness. Righteous robes are woven by the perfection of Jesus and they're purchased by the blood of, of God's Son. That's the only way you can get them is to come to Jesus. If you want to dress for success in God's kingdom, then you need to be found not, in your, not wearing your own robes of righteousness. Not like Adam and Eve with their own fig leaf. Remember those fruit of the loom clothes that they wore? That's not what you want to wear, your own righteousness. You want to be adorned in the righteousness of Jesus, in His goodness, in His grace, in His forgiveness. And you can have it if you'll just ask. We need to put on Christ by faith. But what happens when a man is not rightly robed? Verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Remember, the issue is not whether you're good or bad. We're all bad in the eyes of God. The issue is, are you dressed for success? Have you put on the righteousness of Jesus? Are you clothed in His goodness and in His righteousness? And that's where we'll end tonight. We'll pick it up in verse 15. Next time we get together a week from, two weeks from tonight. 